Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast for July 26th, 2022. I'm your host, Lou DiVizio. I hope you had a great weekend, everybody out there. Good start to the week. This episode's coming to you on a Tuesday. Normally, I shoot for Mondays and Fridays, but my wife and I hosted a family reunion for her mom's side of the family, so I'm just getting back into the swing of things. It was a great time. Uh, I really enjoyed showing off New Mexico. We went on the Sandia Peak Tram. What a view. This is the third time, maybe even the fourth time we've done that since we've been here in the last year. Uh, But everybody loved it. We took them all up to Santa Fe to see the market on Saturday. That was a ton of fun. Um, Really just a good time in general and another reminder of how lucky we all are to live in such a beautiful state. That said, some of that beauty is being threatened by the ongoing drought across the Southwest, and that leads off the headlines impacting people in our state right now. Heat and an increasingly sporadic monsoon season are threatening large areas of the Rio Grande. As of Monday, five miles of the river have dried in the Albuquerque area alone, 12 miles are dry in Las Lunas, and in the Socorro area, 32 miles of the river are now nothing but sand and gravel. Our land executive producer, Laura Paskus, is talking to a UNM professor about the consequences this will have in the coming days, weeks, and months ahead. That'll be on New Mexico in Focus this Friday night. New Mexico's Children, Youth, and Families Department is announcing a series of policy changes following our interview with the Secretary of the Department last week. Secretary Barbara Vigil says the agency will start retraining its frontline investigators and create new critical review teams to help repair some of the issues inside the department. It struggled for years with child fatalities and other critical incidents. The department is also releasing the 27-page review from an outside group that looked into how it handled those cases. If you want to read it for yourself, we've linked that report in the description of this podcast episode. The FBI is releasing a list of more than 170 Native Americans it's verified as missing throughout New Mexico and the Navajo Nation. The agency held a press conference Friday to make that announcement. They want to make all this public, hoping that they can get some help from anyone who may know anything about where these people might be. New Mexico and Focus correspondent Antonia Gonzalez sat down with a Navajo criminal investigator and the special agent in charge of the FBI here in New Mexico earlier this year to talk about how the FBI is expanding its effort to find missing indigenous people. You can watch that on our YouTube page right now. Pope Francis issued a historic public apology Monday for the Catholic Church's cooperation with what he calls Canada's catastrophic policy of indigenous residential schools. The Pope says the forced assimilation of Native people into Christian society destroyed their cultures, severed families, and marginalized generations. Pope Francis traveled to the lands of four Cree nations to pray at a cemetery and then delivered the long-sought apology at a nearby ceremonial ground. There he delivered the message, quote, I humbly beg forgiveness for the evil committed by so many Christians against the indigenous peoples, end quote. A conservative-backed initiative to publish voter registration records from across the country online is moving forward. A federal judge issued that preliminary opinion despite objections from New Mexico election regulators. The decision stops state prosecutors from pursuing allegations of possible election code violations against the creators of VoteRef.com. That website creates searchable access to voter registration records by name and street addresses. 
Secretary of State Maggie Toulouse Oliver and New Mexico election regulators say that violates state restrictions on the purchase and dissemination of voter registration records. They're also concerned it could discourage voter participation because people may opt out if they think that some of their voting information is going to be made public. Oil and gas revenue is booming in New Mexico right now. The state pulled in an extra $1.7 billion in the last four months from that industry alone. That's the most ever in any four-month period. But we know that the oil and gas world comes with a boom and bust cycle, so that money has strings attached. We had a great panel to talk through this issue this past week with plenty of roundhouse experience. Joining Gene is former New Mexico State Senator Dee Feldman, also another former state senator, Diane Snyder, and rounding out that group is Christelle Ciarza from Ciarza Social Digital. Now, the situation with this boom in oil and gas cash is it's treated as one-time money. That's important. That's because we can't count on seeing totals like this again. You just can't. That means it can't be used to do things like create new programs, add permanent jobs, or increase pay for state employees. But it can help with one-time infrastructure investments. It definitely makes for a tough situation budgeting this money, guys. Senator Feldman, I'd like to start with you and your perspective. Given the stipulations that come with one-time money like this, how do lawmakers approach spending decisions when the pile is this big and growing even bigger? Well, um, this is part of a larger problem, of course, and that is the boom and bust cycle that New Mexico finds itself in. Mm -hmm. And this is clearly, uh, we're on the boom side of that now but just, and, and will be probably for the next two, two or three years. Mm -hmm. But the bust will come uh, as it did uh, in uh, 2008, 2009, and before that, 2000, 2001. Mm -hmm. And um, we gotta prepare for that. Um, so as much as we might like to spend all of that surplus that mm -hmm. we have now, and I think there'll be like a billion dollars in new money next year, mm -hmm. as much as we'd like to spend that on uh, sort of glitzy and needed capital outlay projects um, that, you know, give credit to those who appropriate the money, uh, we also, I think, uh, need to look at the idea of putting some of that money away into trust funds or rainy day funds in order to meet the busts uh, that is certainly coming. Um, I, I haven't heard as much about that, but the legislature has created a couple of trust funds in the past to deal with this uh, circumstance, the uh, Children's Trust Fund, number one, uh, and uh, also, uh, there is, I think, a, uh, a reserve uh, that, that New Mexico has uh, and can put some of this surplus in. It's not that popular because as a legislator, you have a lot of people coming to you asking you for, for example, for new fire trucks and new fire equipment to fight forest fires. Right. Um, but um, prudence, I think, would dictate um, preparing for the bust cycle. Good point there. Senator Snyder, I mean, the, the estimates now from Legislative Finance LFC estimates the state's take from oil and gas will reach 5.2 billion, billion for the fiscal year, uh, roughly a billion more than last year. It, it's a phenomenal amount of money. What's your biggest concern when you think about this and, and for lawmakers and how we actually dole out this kind of money? Um, two things, one is, 
uh, yes, it has to go to capital projects. But if you build um, uh, a facility, uh, like a generational facility, mm-hmm. what you can't fund is the staffing and the uh, other, it has to be something tangible. It has to be capital outlay. Mm-hmm. And so we tend to go, all right, well, we'll take that from the general fund, the operating monies. But that also, when when we have the bust in, capt- in uh, severance tax monies, that means we also have a bust usually in the uh, general fund money. So that's an issue for me. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is how we allocate it. Mm. Uh, we've made some positive changes, but I have to tell you, I, just as one example, since we're talking about them this morning, is three times when I was in the Senate, I put in a bill that would establish a public safety trust fund. Mm. It would be so that all of those people the small communities who needed a fire truck, or uh, one of the things I gave in Albuquerque was cameras for inside that can see through smoke, which helps rescue. Uh, Those kinds of things could be purchased through this fund. And it would be, I I can't remember exactly, it seems like it was one half of 1% of, of the monies that came in, and it would establish this fund it's specific to that use. And I think we have to start doing that a little bit if we're ever going to get out of the concept of, okay, uh, you need, you, oh, you want to build a building or you want to buy a fire truck, here's $50,000. Mm-hmm. Well, that won't buy a fire truck. Mm-hmm. And I, I know several people have worked diligently on trying to change that around. But one of the things I'd like to see them do on capital outlay is come to some agreement on what percentage would come off the top and be for statewide projects. Because mm-hmm. the governor gets her part, the Senate gets their part, and the House gets their part of it. Right. But then you would have a, a committee, the, the first round would be through the finance committees, but then a final decision where you have to come and present your reasoning and a real action plan or development plan and that way, then, like, we we needed improved roads down in the southeast uh, corner of the state for mm-hmm. years and years. Mm-hmm. And it was only the last two years where we've had so much money that money went into that. They were having to depend on their legislators to put 100000 or 50000 or whatever into a pot, combined pot. Mm-hmm. So I think we need to focus on, particularly when we have so much money, is what are our direst needs bridges being one of them right and and take that because that's public safety that is uh, the welfare of new mexicans mm-hmm. and i think i think we have to take and make a commitment the legislature and the governor to that money primarily will go to long-term capital projects Imp- an interesting and, point there yeah funding them totally. That's right. You know, Crystal, uh, State Senator George Munoz made an interesting point about capital projects, now that we're uh, talking about that, or this, um, that he wants to increase the funding because inflation, of course, have made, you know, uh, these projects cost more. A prudent thing to do. I think he's onto something here, but I'm interested in your opinion. Is that an efficient avenue for some of this money? 
Um, until capital outlay funding can be more transparent with the way that the money is being spent, I actually don't think it's a great idea to spend it all on capital outlay. And I say this for the sake of transparency in government. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and not only do I, uh, but George Munoz has a really good point though. We've been here before. How do we make sure that we can weather the storm afterwards? Mm -hmm. And I always, and I appreciate um, our senators who are phenomenal representatives, uh, representatives of New Mexican government, but I, I really have to take a step back and say, okay, if we have a surplus, can't we just take the time to actually put a strong strategic plan of priorities for the state of New Mexico? Mm -hmm. When I look at this surplus, I think of a person that had just recently won the New Mexico lottery and says, I have two million new dollars in my bank account. What am I gonna do? I'm gonna spend it on the Lambo, preferably a McLaren. I'm gonna spend it on uh, making sure that I have a really great trip to Tahiti. Um, and I'm gonna spend it on the things that I really think are my priorities for my well-being. Mm -hmm. That's not what we have here in New Mexico because of the boom and bust. And I think we really need to take a step back. And I hear what um, Senator Snyder is saying in terms of making sure that we spend it on infrastructure and we also spend it on public safety. And I understand that, but whenever the governor and our, our legislator comes together, this is going to be a dogfight of of money here, money there, money here, and money there. And we just need to simplify the process of, of, of really reprioritizing what's going to be in the best interest of New Mexico, right? What's going to make sure that our future generations don't have to worry about money in the future. We have to treat this like the way that we treat our personal finances as family. Mm -hmm. And I think that would be the best approach in terms of, of how we treat this money. Yes, trusts are a really phenomenal idea. Yes, um, public safety trusts are, are even phenomenal because public safety is always going to be here. But we have longer generational issues that, that are like the millennial generation and the Gen Z generation have to worry about. Mm -hmm. Why not put that type of funding of surplus into it where the long term they're, they're going to have it um, as time goes on? Mm -hmm. And I think that would be a better approach. And, and also to a boom and bust plan. Right. Yes, we have a boom now. But when there is a bust, how do we make sure that jobs are still um, being kept? How do we make sure that our generations can survive inflation periods? Economists are even showing that in 2030, there's gonna be a recession worse than the one in 2080. And even Kelly O'Donnell in the article from the paper on albuquerque.news said, mm -hmm. we have to start planning in a more concrete fashion for a future economy where oil and gas has less a prominent role in the economy. We have to think about diversifying. It's the simple basics of economics where if you're looking at wealth, you look at diversifying your type of income. Yes, mm -hmm. oil and gas is there great. Mm -hmm. Yes, we now have the cannabis industry. Yes, we've had the film industry. Um, yes, we have health as a major industry in New Mexico. But what other economies can we grow? So that way, yet oil and gas becomes less of the pie, yep. but still becomes a strong footprint over That's time. A good point there. Wildfires are threatening forests around the country. And if rain slows down, they could soon become a real threat here in New Mexico again. That's after a historic wildfire season that saw nearly 700,000 acres burned from just two fires. Laura Paskus and Ourland have been relentlessly covering this fire season, the factors that contribute to it, and the effort to control its damage. We can also learn a lot from fires of the past, like the Cerro Grande fire. It started just like the Hermit's Peak and Calf Canyon fires, from a prescribed burn, this time in the Jemez Mountains in 2000. 
Officials with the U.S. Forest Service, the agency responsible for the Hermit's Peak and Calf Canyon fires, still won't grant interviews. Our land executive producer, Laura Paskus, has been asking for months now, and they haven't made anyone available to us. But she was able to talk to Laura McCarthy. She's the New Mexico State Forester. In her interview last week, Laura asks about the conditions that aggravated this year's fire season and how to make prescribed burns safer. Laura McCarthy, welcome and thanks for joining me today. Glad to be here. So it is not over yet, but this has been a historic fire season in New Mexico. Were you among the surprised at all? I was. I definitely was not expecting that by the 12th of April, we would be in a full-blown fire season. You may remember that the Hermit's Peak fire started on April 6th, and then April 12th, was the start of the McBride fire. So why did, I mean, I know we, we know this, but why, why this fire season this year? So I think there are a bunch of different factors. One is the kind of monsoon season that we had last year that was pretty average, that resulted in a lot of vegetation growth, a lot of grasses and robust shrubs, and they dried out over the fall and winter. And then our winter moisture was, we had some, it was below average, the temperatures were higher. So the effect of each snowfall in terms of recharging the ground, like as it melted, uh, was less. It, and we we ended up in late March with uh, not much soil moisture, snowpack that had had left early, and all this dry grass and brush from the previous summer. That set us up in terms of fuel conditions. Then it start it got windy. And we've done some analysis to ask the question, well, how windy? Because most New Mexicans know April is always windy, but we have data that shows that April and May were both a lot windier than normal, or I shouldn't say than normal. They were a lot windier than the previous 20 years. That's the time period we looked back over. And of course, we know the Forest Service's role in the Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon fires. For people who aren't always paying attention to land management issues, there can be some confusion sometimes between the U.S. Forest Service and your agency, um, New Mexico State Forestry. Does the state have a say in what the Forest Service is doing on federal lands and has that changed since the spring? Could this change? That's a complex question. So uh, legally we have no say. We try to influence them and we are a reciprocal partner and we sometimes pay for projects which gives us more of a say because if we're gonna transfer money, then we're signing a document and that document will have uh, 
management intent in it. But at the end of the day, and especially in terms of those two prescribed burns, the, the they were different. One was the Hermit's Peak fire was a broadcast burn and the Calf Canyon was a pile burn. So different techniques. We had no say at all in either of those fires. Uh, we uh, were not involved in the planning. We were not involved in developing the prescriptions and uh, we did not have any management role in the implementation. So um, since May, which is, I mean, since April, which is three months now, I've been requesting interviews with the US Forest Service to talk about those fires, but more broadly about what tools we really have as a society um, as forest conditions are changing with warming. Um, prescribed fire is an important tool. There's also thinning. Um, but I'm curious, I would love to hear from you. I know you've been thinking about these issues for a long time. What tools do we really have to deal with our forests as it gets warmer, drier, windier? So scientists keep telling us that fire is essential in, in Southwestern ecosystems. And it's not a one size fits all. So the forest you see behind me is in the Gila National Forest. It's in the wilderness. It's in an area where fire is not, uh, it's often managed for a resource benefit. And I'm just gonna slide over a little bit. And you can see like you've got this cohort of young trees coming up with grass and around it, bigger trees and a lot of space between trees. And this is what fire does. It cleans out the undergrowth. And if you were to have a fire right now in this forest, it would stay out of the treetops, which is what it's supposed to do, it would burn along the ground and it would thin out those baby trees. Maybe a few of them would survive, but that's nature's way of managing the forest. And so uh, prescribed fire is an important tool. And my view is that climate change outpaced our prescribed fire protocols. And I can dive into that a little bit if you would like. Yes, please. Okay, so I started really pondering this actually um, as soon as I understood the impact of the Hermit's Peak fire escape. And just running over it in my mind, comparing it to the Cerro Grande fire, which for me personally was a career changing fire in that um, I really hadn't been involved professionally in fire except as a firefighter. Uh, and then I kind of left firefighting and then the Cerro Grande fire happened. And I started after that, I got very involved in fire policy. And the thing about the Cerro Grande fire that stuck with me was that everything they did was within their prescription and they, they were burning in an area that 
could be very wet. And they had tried to burn it a couple of years previously, and it was always too wet. So they waited for it to dry out enough to burn. But what they didn't count on was the conditions of the Ponderosa pine forest a thousand feet elevation lower. And so when it escaped and that ember went down a thousand feet, it took off and was uncontrolled. Not terribly dissimilar from what happened here. And um, so a couple of the lessons learned, I think, and these are things that, um, that I know are being considered as the Forest Service does their review. So one of them is, um, in the planning, are you looking at the fuel conditions outside of the area you're trying to burn? Are you asking the question of if an ember were hypothetically to travel a mile north, south, east, or west of of where your burn area is, what what are the what's the fuel condition like there, and what would happen with an ember that mile away? I think that is something given climate change and the non-linear nature of how climate change affects forest ecosystems that we have to start thinking that way. So adding new layers of contingency to our planning. That's one like tangible thing that it would narrow our window of opportunity to burn, but it could also really make it somewhat safer. New Mexico could soon become a dumping ground for up to 10,000 canisters of nuclear waste from around the country. This is a story we've covered for months now, and we're still hearing vocal opposition to the plan. We brought the topic to our line opinion panelists on the show Friday. Take it away, Gene. Let's bring our line opinion panelists back in to talk through another developing story. New Mexico could soon become a dumping ground for up to 10,000 canisters of nuclear waste from around the country. The U.S. and the new U.S. The U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, sorry, says it's recommending approval of Holtec International's license to store that waste between Hobbs and Carlsbad. It's a proposal that's caused a lot of strong reactions around the state. Let's start there. Uh, Senator Snyder, what was your reaction when you first heard about this plan? That we were going to have hear the same battles and, and same comments that we heard in the past mm. about WIP and what to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I kind of look at it and I was just going, okay, the first response is what about, what do the people who are living closest to it Mm. have to say? Mm -hmm. Because the potential for danger or harm is greater in my opinion in their area. So what do they think? Uh, Most of the ones that I've read and heard about, they're pretty on board with it. I think that those of us who live in, in, in central and northern New Mexico and even southwestern, WIP is not a daily part of our lives, but it is for southeast New Mexico. So I do not think that this proposal generates as much caution as it does from us in other parts of the state. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I also look at it's there, the commitment is there for 40 years, you know, all 40 years, and, but it's not a very long time in terms of the, uh, ex the existence of, an, of nuclear waste and how long it survives, the survival of it. So that, but it is a short period of time. They have made a commitment to finding a permanent place this is supposedly a temporary place that mm -hmm. it will be. Um, I'm not very believing of that. I think once you've invested the money, uh, initial monies and the funds that, and, and people have gotten accustomed to it, then you, you just will expand. But the one thing that worries me the most is the transportation of it. Yes. To the location. Let me, let me jump in on that if I could, and, and if you allow me to kick that over to our other senator here, this idea of, uh, of training this stuff in. You know, we all remember the protests when the whip was first opening, you know, on the highway overpasses because mm -hmm. we were concerned this stuff was going to be on our highways. Same concern, mm -hmm. Didi, that, you know, on rail, is it the same for you or is it worse, possibly? What's your sense of that? Yes, it's definitely worse. Okay. Uh, it's going to be uh, coming from all over the nation, uh, from decommissioned nuclear plants, mm -hmm. uh, from uh, New Jersey, uh, from Michigan, from uh, Massachusetts, some of which Holtec owns itself. And I think the important thing here, and, and you know, frankly, the um, environmental impact statement that was put out by the NRC, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which um, approved this facility, and it's a private facility, it right. was a whitewash. It was really a whitewash wow. uh, in, terms of, um, in terms of the transportation in particular and, and uh, dangers that happen. Uh, and we've seen it with WIP. Of course, we've seen how um, you know the facility was closed down for two years. We spent two billion dollars uh, in um, in government funds to clean it up. This is a commercial facility. Don't forget, there's a big difference between WIP and this facility. This is a commercial facility right. that is designed to store very high-level waste. The, the waste at WIP is low level and less dangerous for those surrounding it, for those who work with it, for those who transport it, than this spent nuclear fuel rods, which are deadly and uh, subject to rail accidents and sabotage. So I'm, I'm heartened by the opposition of many people uh, to this because it's not just an issue of um, uh, Hobbs and Carlsbad, which mm -hmm. largely approve of this. That's a good point there, uh, that your last point the senator made, the other senator made as well. Crystal, um, there's a lot of this stuff around the country. I mean, we're talking, I'm reading here, 200 million liters of this kind of waste still sitting at Hanford. There's a bunch of it still at the Savannah River site, 138 million liters. I mean, we're talking a ton of this is out there. But our entire delegation, including our governor, has said, no, thank you. Should that mean mm -hmm. something? I, we understand from Didi, of course, which she just explained, it's a private deal here, but how, how stiff should the opposition be from our elected folk here? I, you know, it's one of those situations that I think about and I say, it, yes, there's a, I don't like to take the approach, anybody that's ever worked with me knows, I don't like to take the approach of no. We have to take the approach of, 
what can we do better? And I think the nuclear power conversation actually is a conversation that should be started here in New Mexico, but actually spreads to the federal level. Because if all the states start saying no, we're gonna have a problem. According to TechCrunch, of course, nuclear power plants in the United States generate 2000 metric tons of nuclear waste per year. So what does that mean? If we start saying no, everybody else is going to say no, we're going to have nowhere to potentially store this waste. So I think that New Mexico, especially with the new space industry that we have, and among the the innovations in film and the rest of the other industries, Mm -hmm. I think there's actually an opportunity for us to change the conversation instead of no. What if we actually took this conversation and talked about it in in a form of what if it's nuclear recycling? Uh, because conversations across the country, we don't have those conversations enough, but across the world, um, places uh, places across the, the world are actually encouraging, instead of waste storage, talk about it from recycling. And I think New Mexico can actually lead that conversation in some way, shape, or form if we just say, no, we can't have waste cycling, especially since it harms the Mother Earth of New Mexico. But what if we actually change it into something different that we can welcome? And I, we can I, hear, I hear your point, point, but I hear your point, but that's a flip that would be years in the coming. So what do you do with the waste that we have now? And uh, let me throw that to, to Senator Snyder. Sure. Uh, You know, there's a proposal in this legislature last session to formally oppose the plan. It did not pass, which is very interesting to me. I'm I'm curious where the legislature fits into this beyond our delegation. Well, um, the governor is is very much opposed. Um, The radio, there is a Senate committee um, that called the Radioactive and Hazardous Waste Committee, which Mm -hmm. brought the bill, Senator Jeff Steinberg brought this bill forward to um, to reject this plant um, and um, they ran out of time and they did not and it died in Senate Judiciary. Right. Um, it's going to be reintroduced again uh, and I think that people will be a little bit more serious about it this time. The Attorney General is bringing suit against Holtec. Mm-hmm. Uh, remember, uh, th- once again, let me say this is a private facility. Um, and it's, it's very unlike a uh, whip and the rationale for whip is New Mexico had such a major, major, uh, role in the atomic age, the right. birth of the atomic age and the, uh, mining of uranium that it was, it was justified to, to, to have a part of the solution as uh, crystal said in storing it in whip. Mm-hmm. This is, this is not the case. Here, we have 94 nuclear reactors around the country. And, you know, a lot of people have said the safest uh, solution for this is on-site storage of the uh, spent uh, fuel rods um, and not transport, not floating them on a barge out uh, in Lake Michigan, which is one of the things that Holtec wants to do with a plant it owns up there. Uh, and not uh, transporting it by rail all over the country, but storing it on site. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's, a, that's another uh, rational uh, alternative that really certainly was not considered in this uh, environmental impact statement. Yeah, good sure. point. Yeah. And, and, but, Jean, and I just wanted the, to comment too, like sure. I, I actually, so to, to kind of sum up my, my point earlier is yes, the for now, 
is no, but the for now should lead to better federal funding or federal resources to actually make sure that this is not New Mexico's problem. Senator Harry Reid in Nevada had created, had had advocated for no in Nevada, and Nevada is still problematic in terms of storage. We don't want to be the next Nevada when it comes to a situation like this. Yeah, good point there. Thank you all for that discussion. Thanks again to Gene and the line, Laura Paskus, everyone that contributed to this week's episode. Before I wrap it up, I quickly want to touch on that announcement from CYFD that I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. It's really great to see how much progress on transparency the department's made in just the last few days, really. And they've also released that review into how the department handles critical incidents. Uh, the committee that's going through that review, it's now also open to the public virtually. CYFD Secretary Barbara Vigil told me the next meeting is Wednesday morning at 10 a.m. That's Wednesday, July 27th at 10 a.m. She assured me anyone who wants to will be able to watch it online. Thank you to everyone for listening. If you like the podcast, please check out our show. It's on Friday nights at 7 o'clock on New Mexico PBS. I know Friday nights are busy. If it doesn't work for you, we always repost the whole show, all of our segments on our YouTube channel so you can watch there too. You can watch all of those segments individually. We have past shows, past segments. Take it all in. Of course, I'll catch you up on the podcast later in the week too. Thanks again, guys. I'm senior producer Lou DeVizio for July 26, 2022. This is New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. Have a great week.